and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science. This is half an hour on your radio where we will be talking about science. And who are we? Well, Claire is here. Hello, I am here. And today I am actually going to be talking a little bit about a country I um, am heading off to very soon. You're leaving us? Uh, yeah, look, it's just a holiday. I will be back. Before you know it, Chris, before you know it, um, I'm heading to Ethiopia and um, Ethiopia's main export uh, is, a, is a plant that we all know and we all love. It gets me up in the morning um, and it gets me ready for work. So if you can guess what that is. Orange juice. No. Oats, rolled oats. <laughs> bananas, bananas. No, no, no. It is. Palm oil. No, it's coffee. Uh, Anyway, coffee. Oh, coffee. of course. Yeah. That would be my next guess. And so it is a very big coffee producing country. Um, and obviously uh, with climate change, coffee producing regions around the world are changing. And so I'm going to have a little look about some of the research that's being done into how these are changing. Um, and tell an amazing story about how coffee was discovered. Right. And Chris... Yes, well, um, it is that time of year, I will just say, when the time we love when the, um, the prizes are awarded, these being the Ig Nobel Prizes. Uh, Don't you had, mean the Nobel Prizes? The, these are the Ig Nobel Prizes. These are like the, the comedy Nobel Prizes. Right. Uh, and they're kind of sandwiched between the um, the That's Eureka a... Prizes, which you covered oh, yeah. a few weeks ago, the, the Oscars of Australian Science. <laughs> and the, um, the Rikis. The Rikis. And the, the Nobel Prizes, or the, the Nobis, or the, and we did, the Alfreds, Alfreds we, we, the Freds. We did actually, uh, we did actually mention an Ig Nobel Prize winner the other week with the uh, Cure for Hiccups. Of course. was an Ig Nobel Prize winner. Well, the 2017 prizes have just been announced and it is excellent uh, material for science um, reporting news programs like this one. So we are not going to pass up this opportunity, I can tell you that. To, to bring the science lols. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and as always, I am Stu. And I'm going to be talking to PhD candidate Cara Penton from Charles Darwin University in the Northern Territory about how changing fire regimes in the top end are endangering habitat for tiny little creatures and how she's going to figure out who's left and whether they have anywhere to live. Stay tuned for that later in the show. Ethiopia very soon, as I just said. Um, Ethiopia, what comes to mind when you think of Ethiopia? Injera? Injera bread? Oh, that, that kind of spongy flat yeah, bread. Yeah, that's pretty of, good. Oh, that's having, so, um, um, the Great Rift Valley, maybe. Oh. Is it in Ethiopia? Yes. Well, one of the countries. I think okay. it's all throughout um, East Africa. It's so great. That? It's so great. It spreads across a few different countries. Yeah, what, exactly. Was, yeah. was Haley Selassie from Ethiopia? Pretty no, sure he was I Ethiopian. think Ethiopia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're right. Um, churches that have been carved from rock. Oh, not, yeah, yeah. You know those amazing churches? I believe they have an Ark of the Covenant there in one of those. Um, an Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, yeah. But one thing that listeners might not know about Ethiopia is that it is the homeland to a very special and life-affirming plant. Um, a plant whose fruit makes my morning very great every morning. 
a great morning. At least bearable. At least bearable, exactly. Um, I am, of course, talking about coffee and more specifically the Arabica coffee bean from the plant Coffea Arabica. Yeah, not that filthy robusta stuff. Not that, that filthy make, robusta stuff. You make that instant coffee out of that. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> anyway, so Ethiopia is where this plant originated. And um, there's actually a great folklore story about how coffee was discovered um, in Ethiopia. So in the ninth century, an Ethiopian goat herder named Kaldi was doing his thing. He was herding his goats um, when he noticed how the behavior of his goats changed when they ate particular red beans from um, a particular bush. Anyway, um, Kaldi was an um, entrepreneurial man and an innovative man. And he um, noticed that his goats became more energized when they ate this, this bean. So um, he thought he would take the goat's lead and eat the beans himself and um, found out that he also became a little bit more energised. Anyway, he was so pleased with himself, he took himself to, <laughs> to a monastery. <laughs> he was so pleased he took himself to a monastery, as we all do. Just run off to the monastery. I'm so pleased. I know. Anyway, he really wanted to share his, um, his discovery with the monks. So he took himself to the monastery and um, they, I don't know, thought it might have been uh, some sort of witchcraft or wizardry or something, you know, against religion. So they, they disapproved of these beans. And I'm they... guessing I guess he went to the monastery pretty quickly. He came in and goes, hey, guys, hey, guys, I've had a ticket. He's been down there. Just try the cherries. Come on, come on, come on. Anyway, so these monks did not like what was going on. They threw the beans into the fire the beans, you know, started nicely toasting <laughs> on the fire. Really? And then, you know, the first amazing smell of freshly roasted beans that Earth has ever, um, you know, man-made roasted yep. beans anyway. Some of, the, some of the beans fell into their espresso maker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they anyway, accidentally so, ground them up and then well, put them Well, so the story goes, they then took the ashes from this and added... Water, and that was the first ever Arabica bean coffee. Nice, nice. Anyway, this And because the, um, is... the goats had so much energy, they were bouncing around, their milk was naturally frothy. And yeah. That's how the cappuccino was invented. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, this, this story is not necessarily true. I'm not, don't, don't take it as fact. Um, but what you can say is that coffee has been very important to Ethiopia for a very long ta- time. Um, and... Ethiopia is now home to around 3% of the global coffee market. An estimated 15 million um, people in Ethiopia rely on some aspect of coffee production for their livelihood. Um, And exports were somewhere in the vicinity of around 350 million. So that's around one third of the entire country's year's exports. So it's very important. Um, But the Arabica plant is quite specialised. It will only thrive in certain conditions at certain altitudes, specifically within around 1,200 to 2,000 metres with um, a constant rainfall slash watering and um, in certain temperatures. So it likes 16 degrees to 24 degrees. Fussy. Very fussy. Very fussy. Uh, So with global climate change resulting in obviously rising temperatures, uh, changing rainfall, People around the world are starting to realise that climate change could have a real effect 
on their cup of coffee in the morning. So, but coffee is grown in more than just certain mountains in Ethiopia, as my understanding. So, yeah, but still within this range. Okay. Of um. 1,200 to 2,000 metres, okay. um, certain temperatures, constant rainfall. Yeah. If, yeah, if you look around the world at where it is grown, it's usually mountain regions okay. where yeah. the good coffee comes from anyway. Like our neighbours, Timor-Leste, have a thriving coffee um, agricultural system, but um, yeah, they always in the mountains. Mm. Yeah, Byron Bay? Byron Bay, I don't know, but I do have some friends who grew some coffee in Newcastle. Oh, wow, that is quite famously mountainous. <laughs> Like coffee to Newcastle. No, no, no. There is there is Australian-grown coffee, but it's there's not very many places where it's actually well-suited, as far as I know. Mm. With impending, um, you know, doom and, you know, the chance that your coffee might not be there in the morning, um, science has once again stepped in to start solving this problem before it becomes too dire. So new research that has just been published in Nature has shown and modelled how Ethiopia can move its coffee fields to higher ground and increase resilience to climate change and temperature increase. Um, So the researchers have been geospatially modelling Ethiopia with satellite images combining huge amounts of data looking at rainfall patterns and how temperatures are changing and um, the suitability of land to grow coffee. Um, And what they have found is that up to 60% of Ethiopia's coffee production, um, well, current coffee production, could become unsuitable by the end of the century, which, I mean, you know, is still quite a while away. But if you're looking at the sustainability of agriculture and, um, you know, one-third of the exports of this country, it's not that long and you want to be able to protect for future if you think of it in terms of how many harvests, it's only 83 harvests till the end of the century. Yeah, and I guess how long the trees have to mature as well. Mm. I mean, I don't know how long it takes for oh. good producing coffee trees to mature. Yeah, it'd be a couple of years to get new trees into production at yeah. least, but yeah. Um, anyway, well, this, I mean, it sounds like bad news in a lot of ways, but by modelling uh, what they have and by doing it now, they're also giving um, government policymakers and producers a head start to be able to make key changes. So uh, the researchers know that higher altitudes are projected to become more suitable for coffee, while lower altitudes, obviously less suitable with um, higher temperatures and less frequent uh, rainfall in general. Uh, so the researchers are suggesting a relocation of coffee areas in combination with uh, different forest conservation or re-establishment of, of, um, of coffee growing regions as well. And, we, and interestingly, they found that this could actually result in a fourfold increase in suitable coffee farming areas in Ethiopia. So Ethiopia's coffee production could, you know, if these measures were taken, could increase fourfold. Which okay. is um, is a is a bit of a win, I guess, for for Arabica coffee drinkers everywhere. The um the one thing that crosses my mind when I hear that is what's growing there now. Yeah, well that's <laughs> that's true. That's true. Um, and and one thing that the researchers did talk about was slow like another the other important step is to slowly substitute coffee with other plants that may give an in- income as well mm. so not just purely relying on coffee plants for income um and then obviously um also 
um, working with conservation, forest conservation, um, to make sure it's a sustainable redevelopment and sustainable agriculture. Um, anyway, but I thought this was very interesting and a really important step for, um, you know, protecting our source of coffee now and into the future. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. Yes, you are listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris and it is my honour to tell you about the uh, this year's Ig Nobel Prizes. Always a, a fun time of year. Um, the Ig Nobel Prizes, for those who don't know about them, they're kind of a parody Nobel Prize. They describe them as for achievements that first make people laugh, then make them think. In that order. Then probably make them laugh again. Maybe, yeah. I mean, because basically <laughs> stuff that is a bit, sounds a bit silly, but actually has, generally, usually has real science behind it. Sometimes they just mock people with, you know. Terrible, a, terrible ideas. Although it is all based on actual published science. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm going to run through uh, some of the some of my favourites of this year's crop. There are like 10 prizes, uh, so I, I don't think we'll have time to go through them all, but let's, let's run through. Um, Tell us your favourites, Chris. Well, the favourite, my favourite, obviously, is going to be the Physics Prize, <laughs> which this year went to... Naturally. ...went to uh, Marc-Antoine Fadin for using fluid dynamics to probe the question of... Can a cat be both a solid and a liquid? No. <laughs> so it just came from a 2014 paper on called On the Rheology of Cats. And basically this guy, he observed that, okay, it's, it's, it's interesting. On a short time frame, cats behave like a solid. Yeah. But yeah. leave them long enough and they will fill up a container just like a liquid would. <laughs> um, this, he got this after seeing pictures on the internet. I've got some pictures here I can show you guys in the studio there. Okay. Um, so I, you're talking like when a cat um, sees an empty box that is way too small for it, yet it ha- still wants well, to get and, it. And, and, and the actually, the sink. yeah, the cat oh, in the sink. Wow. The cat in the uh, the cat in the wine glass is a particularly oh yeah particularly yeah. good they, one. They act like a, and this cat in a in a in a in a, in a vase cone. Well, he does seem to suggest that um that thing. long enough that cat in, in the bottom corner, the one that's sort of yeah in a sort of a conical shaped bowl, bowl he calls, describes as acting like a gas because it's kind of <laughs> extending out of the, the bowl as well. Calculating the the Debra number, which is a number that is used to describe fluidity, so it's basically you can essentially look at the time it takes a cat to fill up a container and work out what its properties as a liquid are. So it's an interesting <laughs> exercise in applying. Is it, is it a liquid or is it a fluid? When I a used fluid, to, a fluid, yeah, yeah, yeah. When I used to give um, presentations about fluids to primary school kids, we would say, "What do fluids do? They take the shape of their container and they flow." Yeah, well, cats can also flow. Do they? I've seen them fall off things as if they were flowing. <laughs> um, yes. So that is the, that is the physics prize. Uh, some other highlights. Um, the Peace Prize um, was actually uh, an Australian winner. Um, and this is for research showing that uh, playing... No, no, that wasn't that one. Sorry, not the Peace Prize. So the Economics Prize is the Australian winner. My mistake. Um, I sit corrected. Um, for showing how contact with a live crocodile affects a person's willingness to gamble. Um, this is right. people, Matthew Rockloff and Nancy Greer from Central Queensland University. Basically, what they did is they let people handle crocodiles, like small crocodiles, yeah. and they um, saltwater crocodiles, and they found that if people who were excited about holding a crocodile and made them more excited and they felt lucky and they were more willing to place larger bets, uh, people who were 
you know, weren't happy about the croc experience were more cautious in their gambling. Because they're gambling with their life? Like what? Because oh, it's just the way the emotional reaction to the crocodile affects in their, the way they gamble. That's really interesting. Yeah. So, so, and it, how long after the uh, the crocodile handling did the effect last? Oh, immediately, did they measure that? Immediately, right. yeah, yeah. And they said that they used um, crocodiles because they were there. This is at Central Queensland University, and they said um, I was casting around in Central Queensland for things that were exciting, and there's not a lot exciting in Central Queensland, <laughs> Professor Rockloff said. But my wife came up with a brilliant suggestion: we have crocodiles, and those are kind of exciting. So there you go. That's, Where is uh, the University of Central Queensland? In Rockhampton, I believe. Okay, right. Yeah. P- pretty central Queensland. Yeah. Um, other one, one of my favourites is uh, great, the Cognition Prize. So these don't necessarily follow the traditional number of prize no, categories. No, they do, they do change their categories yeah. depending on what's the funniest thing they can find. The Cognition Prize went to Matteo Martini, Ilaria Bufalari, Maria Antonietta Stasi and Salvatore Maria Agliotti. They're from Italy, I assume. Italy, Spain, and the UK for demonstrating that many identical twins cannot tell themselves apart. (laughs) (laughs) How old were their subjects? Uh, Look, they were were adult twins. um, And what they did is they just basically showed them faces to see if they could... You know, um, normal normal way up and upside down, inverted as well, to see how well they were able to recognise themselves. And they found that particularly when the faces were inverted, they had trouble telling themselves and their twins apart. But it did depend quite obviously on how similar they looked. And also how often they spend upside down as well, yeah, possibly, well, no, potentially. No, no. You know, the, the more that they rated themselves <laughs> basically to be similar, the more trouble they had telling themselves apart. But yeah, so... Even twins can't tell each other apart. That's just, I think that's good to know. When, for anyone who's when to they're upside twins. down. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Caveat. Other good ones. No, even I think even right way up, they were still within the, the margin of the, the error in the experiment. Really? They still, yeah. They weren't really that much better than normal people. Um, not that they're not normal. Uh, other um, people, I think other you mean people. to say. <laughs> um, the, another one that I quite liked was uh, to the Anatomy Prize, which went to James Heathcote. Uh, general practitioner for his medical research study on why do old men have big ears, oh. and what and why do old men have big ears? Um, it's basically uh, it seems because they gravity they stretch under gravity. Oh, really? really? So yeah, your, ears, your ears don't keep growing. That's an old no. They don't keep myth. growing. They just kind of stretch under gravity. Yeah, right. I thought so it was your earlobes be... your earlobes end up getting lower and lower as time yeah, goes yeah. on. I thought it was going to be one of those cases like, um, like why does the moon look bigger closer to the horizon? And it was just like maybe the ears were getting closer to the front of the face. Oh, well, you know how. <laughs> no, well, actually, yeah. the older they are, the more likely they are to have short hair, if you think about it. Oh, yeah. You know, older men get their hair cut shorter and shorter. Totally. Yeah. yeah. So maybe that or has something to do with bolder and bolder, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Could be. Um, I'll just run through some of the other ones quickly. The Peace Prize did go to researchers who basically found that playing the didgeridoo helps cure snoring. Um, wow. Basically improves the, the muscles in the in the airway. Really? Um, so that circular breathing of playing the didgeridoo has some well, I, they, exercising they, they, they put effect. It down to, yeah, the exercising of the muscles. Um, the Biology Prize went to discovery of a cave insect that had a both a female penis and a male vagina. Think about that one. Okay. Um, the Fluid Dynamics cool. Prize um, to a Korean researcher who studied the dynamics of liquid sloshing to learn what happens when a person walks backwards while carrying a cup of coffee, which is very important, as you can imagine. 
no. Mm. Anyway, I highly recommend you looking at the, the Ig Nobel Prizes if you want to be made to laugh and then made to think. Um, lost in Science. I think we try and do it the other way around, or maybe you can think and laugh at the same time. Science. The Final Frontier. These are the voyages of Lost in Science, our ongoing mission to explain strange new words, to seek out new science and new explanations, to boldly go where no radio has gone before. Australian landscapes, fire has been a traditional part of land management, but there is some doubt about whether current uh, fire regimes that have been introduced since European settlement are having the same effect in keeping the natural ecosystems functioning. I've got joining me on the phone today a researcher from Charles Darwin University, Cara Penton, who is looking into the effect of current fire management practices on native fauna in particular. Thanks for joining us on Lost in Science, Cara. Thank you for having me. No worries. So as far as fire goes, in the Northern Territory, fire is probably a little bit different to in other parts of the country. The temperate fire regimes are slightly different. How does fire work in the tropics? Yeah, so in our Northern Savannah system, fire is a lot more uh, frequent. Uh, with savannas being burnt in intervals of usually around three years. Uh, and uh, we have kind of two separate fires that we can separate into, which is mainly occurs in our dry season uh, in March to about August. And if it's early in the dry season, there's a lot of moisture in the system still, so they're low-intensity burns. They move very slow, and they just generally burn the leaf litter. And then when we get towards the end of the season, which we've seen uh, in the news recently, we get these really big, hot, dry, intense fires that can take out the landscape. So are these, are these uh, I, I guess, are these natural fires that are occurring or are these fires that the, that the you know, that authorities are setting for other purposes? Yep, so most planned burning aim to uh, burn early in the dry season. However, this is not exactly what occurs in practice, um, just you know, due to resources and time management. Um, also, we still deal with, uh, I guess, people um, intentionally setting, um, setting fires, which has occurred recently in the Northern Territory. Uh, especially at this time of the year, can be quite dangerous. And some of this is natural, um, but uh, generally speaking, uh, most of the thing that does occur up here now uh, definitely near asset protection areas uh, is is management based. Okay, so as far as that goes, they're they're burning to protect um, farm assets and I guess other development um, and commercial assets. Now, obviously, that's not uh, putting the natural ecology at the top of the list of priorities. What effect are the planned burns having on the natural ecological systems in the Northern Territory? Yeah, so what we think we are seeing is that these 
contemporary fire regimes of having these more intense late dry season fires, which is a result of a few things. For example, gamber grass has a huge effect on making these fires more hot, is that we're seeing that the uh, these fires are actually replacing the landscape and they're more likely to take out all trees of all sizes in their path that they get in under the tree and they burn them and they fell them over. Um, and so, you know, in places like Kakadu, for example, we can see that the trees are smaller, uh, they're younger, and there's not as many big old trees in the landscape. So the gamber grass, is that, uh, is that an introduced species? Is, is that... Yeah. So that's an exotic that's come in and it's, it's benefiting from this fire regime as well? Yes, it is. So it's, it's a grass that doesn't cure the same as our, as our homegrown grasses and they grow very, very tall. And so effectively they allow that flame to go a lot higher, um, you know, which helps the fire in terms of its heat and also to affect the trees and scorch the canopy. So what, what's the actual, what's the big problem with, uh, with the trees being removed um, from, from the landscape? So the big problem um, that, you know, we could be seeing up here is that we're losing these large old trees or even younger trees that would potentially grow old. And these trees have hollows, which are an incredibly important ecological resource for 40% of our animals in the top end. So these hollows effectively work as homes and shelter for these animals. And they're more abundant in large old trees because they take time to develop. Okay, so have have we have you or has anyone noticed uh, a decline in the numbers of these of these animals that that uh, live in the in the trees? Yep. So in uh, Kakadu, about five years ago, there's been long-term trapping for about twenty years, and we've seen the brush-tailed rabbit rat um, basically disappear from the data set. Uh, the black rat has also declined. And we also know that they're declining over the top end. So recently we're seeing crashes also on the Coburg Peninsula. So these declines for these tree-dwelling mammals has already been documented, but the question is why. Okay, and you personally have been uh, climbing up trees looking for, um, for, for animals, is that right? Yeah, so as part of my research, I'm looking at these hollows in the trees of actually assessing how many hollows do we have, what's the quality of these hollows, and hopefully trying to find a couple critters, uh, which I will admit are far and few in between. Uh, but, yeah, getting up in the trees and actually seeing the quality of these hollows is really important because something we count from the ground may not necessarily be adequate uh, for an actual animal to live in. So... Uh Aside from, I guess, changing the fire regime, what's, what's the next step in your research? Yeah, so uh, we're looking at next year to track 10, uh, at least 10 individuals of three different species and tracking them to their hollows um, so that we get an idea, I guess, of what type of hollows they use, uh, how much of the land they require. Uh, and then also in the future to look at I guess, the management of implementing it not only with fire but also grazing, cattle grazing, because that's a big part of uh, the northern Australian landscape. And also looking at, uh, I guess, potential options to protect these species of whether we need to look at nest box implementation 
or maybe predator-proof zones uh, to ensure that these species actually survive into the future. Well, it sounds like really, um, really interesting work, and uh, I would be interested to catch up with you next year after you've tracked some of these little critters around and see what they actually do get up to when they're not, um, when they haven't got nesting in the trees available to them. Yeah, me too. Looking forward to it. Um, and yeah, we do know that they change their behaviour based on the available hollows in the system. So it'll be great to know where they're uh, utilising otherwise. Well, um, I'll I'll definitely be in touch and we'll, we'll um, try and catch up with you again once you've got some more information about that. Uh, thanks for joining us on Lost in Science and filling us in about your research in the top end. No worries. Thanks for having me. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, You can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook. Uh, And if that's not enough Lost in Science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost in science. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.